You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome to another episode of Intellectual Erection with your host Patrick. On today's episode, I speak to Andrea Werhan. I wanted nothing more than to dance to my favorite music, take my clothes off, and have people look at my pussy. She is the writer of Modern Whore. What a great book title. And what a great book. You're going to find out all about it. It's got really good content in there. It's about the experience of escorting here in Toronto. Um, It is a two-part episode, so this is the first of two parts because Andrea had a lot to say, and I wanted to hear it all. You should go pick up a copy of this book. It's worth your time. It's good for self-care. It was for me anyway. Aside from that, another project that is in the works, you may have seen something on the Instagram if you follow at intellectual underscore erection. You might have seen a pair of panties floating around with the logo of the podcast. And maybe you saw a model wearing those panties. And maybe I said something last week about these panties being worn and juiced up. Who knows? Maybe they're going to be coming up for sale. (gasps) Did I just say that? I shouldn't say that. Maybe I should edit this out. Don't tell anyone. It's our little secret. Until more information comes out, enjoy this episode. And as always, like, subscribe, review, and most of all, enjoy. I'm sitting here today with... Me, <laughs> Andrea Warehan. <laughs> I love. I always confuse the guests. I do that. I do the pause, and they're like, "What is it? My fucking turn to speak?" <laughs> yeah. Um, have you heard the name, Andrea? I just learned to pronounce your last name, Andrea Warehan. 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 It's with a or Verhoon if you're nasty. Verhoon. <laughs> In that case, Verhoon for me, please. <laughs> I'll take a Verhoon over here. Um, so, if you haven't heard the name, then you're missing out. Especially if you're from Chirana, if you're from the local scene, if you're in the sex positive communities from around here, and you haven't heard of the modern whore, uh, yeah, get yourself checked out because uh, this young, inspiring writer has produced a book in tandem with a friend of hers who took a bunch of really awesome pictures of her throughout her experiences and put together something called the modern whore and it is i don't know how to describe it there's there's so many descriptors for it that it's hard to to settle on one thing it's something different it's a unique project and i don't want to give too much away so this is what we're going to end up talking about but we always start somewhere else so first things first i want to know a little bit about you me yes yes (laughs) yes so I always ask the, the, the first thing of my guests is um, ask for a kind of origin story, but deep origin story. If you can think back somewhere maybe in your childhood when you had your first perhaps sexual awakening. Some guests have seen things on TV and it got them thinking, got them curious about their bodies, about sex. Some people had board games that oddly turn them on and sometimes it's a story that kind of indicates that the sexual path for this person might be a little bit different than the norm which is most of my guests actually so do you have something like that do you have an origin story a a, a really young Andrea I just I actually find that idea of there being like a norm interesting because I think if we poll if you ask every single person this exact same question you would find Everyone had very surprising answers. I don't think there is a norm. I think everyone's got an interesting path to discovering their sexuality. But for me, and I would guess that a few people in this generation will have discovered their sexuality in a similar way. Um, I got a home computer when I was 10 years old. Ooh. And in grade four, 
like a lot of people, I was on a website called Newgrounds.com. I don't know about Newgrounds. Okay, well, it's so it's just sort of like a like a website that you could play dress up games and mm. uh, flash games and. I started getting into Flash. I wanted to build games. So uh, you were 10. I think we're relatively the same age, right? I'm 29. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah relatively yeah. the same age. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was. I got pretty deep into Newgrounds at the time. Um, and like I said, it's, it was just a place to like play games. And um, they had a message board and a chat room, and I was pretty active in that as well. Mm-hmm. lying about how old I was. That came later. <laughs> I was also part of my uh, budding sexual identity. But at 10 years old, I was scrolling down the Newgrounds homepage. And if you scrolled down long enough, you got a link to a website um, called styleproject.net. And I clicked out of curiosity because I, I could see that it was pornographic in nature and Ooh. I was already very curious at that point. Um, and what showed up on my computer screen was a lot of porn, very graphic porn. And it, my sexual awakening was also concurrent with a discovery of websites like rotten.com and I remember rotten. Yeah, like that that was like yeah. kind of a major part of my development was like yeah. almost becoming desensitized to these images of E-bombs like, world. <laughs> yeah, in the same vein. Yeah, people yeah. who were going on Newgrounds were also going on E-bombs. E-bombs world and rotten. Yeah, oh my. Yeah, God. it's sort of like a network of yeah. fuckery mm-hmm. for kids. So um yeah, I, I started watching the porn there, and I remember the first time that I masturbated, you know, with, with some consciousness was while watching a woman um, solo sit on a dildo on, like, her carpeted floor. I could see, like, the sliding door leading to her backyard in the background, um, and her just sort of, like, fucking herself. And I'm like, what is this feeling in my body like I'm (laughs) buzzing down there I have to touch and I touched myself and I was soaking wet and I was like what is this and I just kept touching myself um and then that week I would sneak down every night after everyone had gone to sleep to (laughs) go back to style project and look at all the porn and that week I remember grade four sitting in the lunchroom with like my girlfriends um in this packed room everyone just eating their food and i'm like i'm looking at them and i'm like no one in this cafeteria knows that i have a porn addiction (laughs) (laughs) your sexy little secret yeah my sexy little like no one would look at me grade four andrea and guess that i had a porn addiction but I knew those terms, and I knew that I like was very much compelled to this imagery, and that I liked it, and that it felt good, and that I. But it was also a secret, and it was my secret. Wow. Um, and then that compulsion did like definitely uh, set the stage for future endeavors, including like the compulsion to write a book and put 60 naked photographs of myself alongside my work yes never mind the escorting the stripping yeah but all of it was like you know sort of this fucking yeah Yeah. ownership over my own body and recognizing that like i could use my body and display my body and like uh no one could uh, hold it against me essentially you mean you get the rights to your own body like what world are you living in (laughs) apparently it's absurd (laughs) Uh, an entirely different planet than other people, but I'm, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I'm glad I live in my own bubble. Wow! So you discovered you discovered your body fairly early, and in that process, was there any was there any um, instances of of shaming or feeling guilty about it? Did you go through any of that, or did you kind of bypass some of that? I feel like I went a surprisingly long time without feeling ashamed of my sexual impulses. The thing is. I grew up in a house with my mom and my brother, and my mom is very funny, uh, <laughs> and her humor is often very dirty, and she is the queen of the dirty joke, 
and has always been my entire life and occasionally the queen of TMI. So I was hearing <laughs> okay. things that I like shouldn't have heard. Her right, st- right. She should not have been telling me certain things about people she'd had sex with and like... Anyways, I... <laughs> <laughs> and my brother was also like very open, my younger brother. So we always like... There was always humor in sexuality from right. a, from the very start like the first song that i remember like singing along to was with my mom and my brother in the car and it was rod stewart's do you think i'm sexy if you want my body and, and you, you think, think i'm, I'm sexy, sexy come, come on, on honey tell yeah. me so. but that's like remember we're all the three of us like just like two kids and a mom just singing this song and having a great time so like that's the sort of like the grounds in which i was brought up of like this is kind of this is all funny and it's for pleasure and it's right. so not it like, shameful and, it was lighthearted it was lighthearted cool. yeah there were implications to that because if you take it that way then of course um you know i was developing a sense of freedom and a sense that i should be able to for instance take naked pictures of myself and post them online mm-hmm. uh as a teenager which you did which i did yeah which in those those pictures exist they are officially child porn but they are yeah. pictures that i took myself very methodically and i had like a like a, wow. a a thought process when it came to that um that i felt justified in in posting those because i was curious i was doing research and <laughs> Re- research really, for science for yeah science. first this is for science for this science. is this is a, a way in which i am discovering myself and i very right. firmly believed it when i was posting these pictures at 15 and 16 mm-hmm. um but that's sort of like you know, using sexuality and the display of sexuality as a means of self-discovery, that was always there. And I, well, I believe that these that my sexuality and who I was was fully intertwined, and it made me a more full person. Yeah, well, it is. It, it's part of it, it's part of your being. It's part of your embodied self. It's not something that you can easily detach, and especially at the period of your life when you're going through all those hormonal changes. Right, that's the time you want to explore, and that's why nearly everyone I interview has a story sometimes there's one right from like prepubescence where something just popped up and they're like what is this sexuality then there's like as Freud would theorize the latency period where nothing happens where you just you're asexual for a while you don't care and then puberty hits and then all these sorts of feelings ideas need to explore happen it happens for all of us and I happen to be like I said during that same period with the early online access and seeing things for the first time and curiosities and just finding odd things online that would turn me on and it would be weird complexes of of sometimes guilt, anxiety, shame, but also excitement and not being able to turn away from it. I think it's possible that the internet, by virtue of its um, permanence, will change the way that we look at our like yeah. early teen years and the way we look at sexuality and, and the way that it develops because I, I still think that we have such a squeamish relationship talking yeah. about um, you, sexuality in our youth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean like, yeah, exactly. Like we're so precocious in those years. You're so like curious and excited and it is a miracle to get out of those years without experiencing some form of abuse because everyone can you know can smell it off you that you're curious and yeah yeah um, people will exploit that absolutely they exploit it there's something so attractive about um new sexuality and and the like emergence of an awareness about one's sexuality and the taboo people love fucking taboo but yeah don't exercise taboo at the expense of somebody else's um you know health and development yeah um so that's yeah i mean it's it can it can totally fuck somebody up and but that we can see yeah i mean i think the context of is like if you know two 14 year olds are sending pictures to each other mm-hmm. it's technically still child porn but is it also a manifestation of a healthy sexuality I, well i don't i wouldn't call it child porn i think that's that's um 
that requires the context of there being a, an external observer who is mature enough to recognize it as underage pornography. Because when we're young, like we'll explore as as early as like kindergarten. They have the the kindergartens in I forget which Scandinavian country where they let, uh, you know, I think it was Sweden or something. They let children explore and they play doctor. They touch each other's genitals. There's a general healthy curiosity, and they don't shun it. They let them do it. So, um, you know, it can't be child porn unless there's an adult that's observing it and getting sexually aroused by it and taking advantage of the fact that this young person doesn't have the wherewithal to understand the sexual context. They're in the midst of exploring something and here's an adult who, who knows what they're doing and can exploit that and then potentially interrupt their development by interfering, right? But you don't think it's technically child porn by virtue of existing? Because if somebody got a, like that CD you burned yeah. and then shared the photos, yeah. then it would be child porn. But because right. you created it in the context of it being shared between two well, people who are the I, same age. I don't know what the law is on that because technically everybody who would be in those pictures are now adults. So they can't necessarily be exploited. So the, it's... The victim is kind of removed from the situation, not completely, because you could still, obviously, somebody could still use that against you, but you're you're not able to be uh, harassed in the same way as if you were that age at the time, right? But it would certainly be child porn if if uh, if somebody got a hold of it and used it to, to to gratify their sexual urges, right? So if somebody got a hold of that CD or like pictures of you when you were young and uh, some asshole is jerking off to it right now, then that person is still culpable, right? Whether or not they're still able to to damage you as a person right now is is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. It was it would obviously be more damaging if you were still fourteen than if you're an adult now. Uh, I don't know how the law works around that because I'm sure everybody has like their phones with with uh, you know uh, pictures of themselves when they're young. Now, especially this this uh, generation that grew up uh, with uh, what are they called technological natives or something, mm. right? If you're like 14 and you take nudes of yourself and you have them on your phone, I don't know what the law is around that because people can get a, a hold of that, right? You can accidentally or maliciously access that that information. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like the law can't move fast enough to, you know, catch up to, like, the rampant sexuality of teenagers. It's just, like, it moves way too fast. And, you know, kids will use any form of technology to share pictures of their bodies because it's hot. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's an interesting question. Like, as soon as the picture is taken, is that picture considered child porn or not? Because I would say that, like, if somebody found all of those photos that Mm -hmm. I had posted... As a teenager, that's still t- that's still child porn. Well, yeah. All I'm saying is that the it matters who possesses it. If you possess it and it's your body, right, you're not going to be culpable. If somebody else possesses it who's an adult, uh, they're culpable. Imagine if, though, Imagine having to like <laughs> like fight for the possession of your own child pornography. <laughs> right. Or imagine. Okay, so there's pictures of you when you're 14 and they're nude, and a 14 year old boy accesses them online what does that constitute it's true it's very complicated right? well it's 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 something that needs to be considered on a on a kind of case-by-case basis but i think culpability is uh, is generally applied in situations where an adult has uh access to or retains some sort of copies of underage you know children or whatever it is in uh nude and sexually suggestive or sexually explicit situations right whether or not you jerk off to it or keep it as whatever fucking weird excuse you have for it at that point you're culpable because you're an adult right i think that's about that's about it (laughs) but um moving on yeah so anyway you're masturbating at 10 on sites like i forget what you called it it was called style project i don't think it's still Probably um, not. Yeah. I know Ebom's world is still up. I I, I searched for it like last year. Mere shadow of what it used to be. It used to right. Be so it much more to... controversial. It was yeah yeah. There was a lot on there, and Rotten was was horrible. I loved it. I spent so much time on there. They have such an amazing library on Rotten.com that is like text articles that yeah. were all 
relevant to my interests and I felt like I learned so much about the world in that library but also you know looking at pictures of Filipino prostitutes in the morgue or like people yeah. whose head had gotten run over by, by a train by trains like that's the one I was thinking of. yeah, yeah. you yeah, know not, like, not my cup of tea yeah there the was some violence is just ugh. by grade eight I was very desensitized to those images like I could look at any form of gore and not feel anything and then as I got older I realized that I wanted that I was actually softer than that and that I wanted to be horrified by those things and made the choice to move away from it. Wow. So between 10 year old you who's exploring, uh, did you ever get caught by the way? Caught masturbating? Yeah. Or like searching the porn or any of that. I never got caught masturbating. I never got, if I got caught looking or, you know, my history was looked at, nobody cared. What did end up happening is that my family found my nudes when Ooh. I was 16. And that was a very pivotal moment in my life. What happened there? <sighs> you, can, you can click the skip button if you want on that one. <laughs> well, I mean, it was an interesting experience. It was like, to give you some context, I, well, I don't know if I, hmm. You don't have to if you don't want to talk about it. It was a painful experience. It was humiliating. Um, and I I never posted nudes again. But I'd, at that point, I'd already stopped posting nudes. So but it was a situation where, like, everyone was around the computer looking at them. And it was, like, very embarrassing for me. Um... And I'd had some, like, interesting experiences as a result of having posted my nudes. I was posting them on 4chan. Because mm, mm-hmm. uh, that was where a lot of us from Newgrounds went. We went to 4chan. 4chan. Yeah. And this was very early days, 4chan. Um, and, yeah, like, I uh, had a folder on the computer very barely disguised someone came upon it whether it was my mom or my brother uh my mom found out my stepdad was looking at it like i woke up one morning like basically to them clicking around on the computer and like oh wow okay Going through them oh my god yeah it was pretty bad and then um deciding to stop but like i really did spend every single day of high school reflecting on what it would mean for them to find out, but mostly what it would mean for someone at my school to find them. Mm-hmm. And reflecting on the ownership I had over my own body. This became like the daily meditation on the bus or on the subway, on the way to school, on the way home. Is what if somebody finds them? What will I do? How will I react? How will I handle this? Because now it starts to feel like an inevitability. This secret life that I've been leading online, right. where I'm posting these nudes and I have my own board and I like have my own like fake name and like it's all exciting and it's fun and I'm also like meeting guys from these websites who are obviously a lot older than I am, mm. <laughs> which was. Uh, interesting as well but every teenage girl goes to the experience where they you know some someone in their 20s is really attracted to them and and they feel like the only reason that these guys are attracted to them is because they're so smart and mature for their age oh yeah that's that's the line that's the line you're so mature i'm 16 like you don't know anything and i'd like I remember graduating high school and finally having someone of an outside view of how men looked at teenagers and realizing one that I wasn't I wasn't that like fresh meat anymore at 18 <laughs> but also that you know yeah it, that it there's a almost instinctual attraction to teens who think that they are so mature and that they are so smart and that they know everything and uh yeah that I wasn't that I was like not I was starting to like move out of that category and what that meant and feeling like oh my god I've been exploited my arrogance and my yeah 
I mean, did you did you ever meet these men in person? From I did, yeah, and I had some interesting experiences. Some of them good, a lot of them not that great. Um, and I had by the point that my parents saw the photos, I was already not posting anymore. I just like it had stopped being fun, and I recognized that, and I stopped as soon as it stopped being fun. I stopped, and I only did it like while it was fun. Um. Which is my general MO. I only do things. Un- do them until they're fun and then, yeah. Yeah, until they're not. Yeah. When they're not fun anymore, then Stop fail. Yeah. Just fucking get out of there. So That's how you treat relationships, too. Of course. <laughs> and, I, and I do bail on things when they're not fun anymore. Yeah. I think I have my, my reasons and my justifications. But, yeah. yeah, if it's a waste of my time. If I feel like, you know, with the pictures, I was starting to feel like I was, I don't know, like I had a duty to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I had an audience, like a fan base that yeah. I felt I was obliged to now all of a sudden. When like, who fucking cares? Like, like the, there's like a new girl posting her tits, you yeah. know, every second. I don't need to be the one. I can like, if this is not fun for me anymore, I can stop. So I did. Um, and then they found it. And then someone at school did find them. Oh, no. And, but it, it just so happened that he was a very nice guy. He was um, a guy who was bullied a lot at school. Someone that I talked to, that I connected with. We were friends. I never bullied him. Like I like yeah. thought he was a nice guy. Um, but he found them, and he sort of subtly let me know that he found them. Hey, saw your tits online, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Nice haircut. Well, like I was, he did it in a way where I was wearing like a green sweater that I'd worn in one of my the photos, pictures, yeah, and yeah. he was like. That's a nice green sweater. I think I saw it in a uh, picture online. And I was like, <gasps> Oh my God. That ghost feeling where, yeah. where your soul leaves your body and you're yeah. just left there as a husk of a human. It's, it was like, and we were in the hallways. Like I was like getting a drink from the water fountain and like, you just have to pause and be like, and I, I felt like I had control over the situation. Like this was not going to be the nuclear yeah. um, option that I thought like someone who found them might uh pull you know this was a guy that i could trust to not do that granted he did do some degree of online stalking of me as a result of finding the photos and once sort of followed me and i was really uncomfortable with it but if that was the exchange of like you know not having somebody print out all these pictures and throw them around the school as i thought was like my nightmare scenario Yeah, yeah then then that was fine with me yeah um but yeah, I, I really do think that that experience is what ended up like sort of making sex work make the most sense for me because I realized like nobody, like nobody has control over my body except me. Like no one can hold this against me. And if I show my naked pictures first, if you try to mm-hmm. use that as ammunition against me, good fucking luck, buddy. Yeah. Try, try again. He beat him to the punch. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I thought of it in those terms. So... Yeah, that's how my childhood sexuality developed. <laughs> that's certainly an interesting childhood. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know, interesting, sort of like inwardly interesting, I'm sure. Like, I Well, it's interesting to, as a listener, I mean, it, it carries a lot of flashback memories for me of, of early online experiences, going through all of this. Like I said, we're from that same sort of age bracket so i just it resonates with me that online experience your first kind of agency with anonymity that you get to to kind of toy with and then when the anonymity is broken it scares you like shit somebody found me they found my secrets and you know little do you know that you all kind of have secrets for you it was sort of a a different path you you kind of agentically chose to enter uh the escorting uh what should i call it business right yeah so what happened there how do we so i get my first job at 18 as a barista at cafe crepe cafe crepe on queen street oh is that the one by Much Music? Yeah. Oh my. Yeah, no, I felt like I like I made it. <laughs> yeah, I worked it. at the Cafe Crepe that's always in the background of like Much Music uh, stuff. 
um, and I worked on Queen Street and I, you know, I was working downtown. I was just reflecting on this today. Like I'd bumped into a friend maybe around that time uh, after we'd graduated high school. And I told him I worked at Cafe Crepe on Queen Street. And he's like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Like you always said you wanted to work downtown and you're doing it. Like congratulations. And, you know, like at that time it felt like I'd made it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was working for minimum wage, like we all were, and uh, noticing that if I smiled or if I jiggled a little bit, if I wore a little cleavage, I was making more tips. Hmm. There was a direct correlation between how good I could make the customers feel and how much money they put in the jar. It was a matter of loonies and toonies, but I was registering that there was something else going on. and like. I was having some interesting uh, interactions with these customers. Like, I had one guy come in and drop off a love letter for me. <laughs> At Cafe Crepe. At Cafe Crepe. How appropriate. How very French. Yeah. Well, and he, and then I had another, a French guy. He's like, oh, tu es très mignon. And I was like. What? Filet mignon? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly my response. I was like, are you calling me a piece of steak? <laughs> At least it's a good cut. Yeah, right. Uh, he said, no, cute, cute, you are cute. And like all sorts of characters would come through there. Um, but I was realizing that, you know, I, I think I wanted something a little bit more than minimum wage. I didn't know quite exactly what that meant. I still don't, to be honest, know what that means. Mm-hmm. But um, I was realizing that what I was good at was making people feel good. And that like... Part of how I made people feel good was with my like sort of joyful sexuality, and uh, I did that for a couple years. I and I had various jobs in the meantime as well. I worked as a receptionist at a orthodontic <laughs> office. Ooh! <laughs> I was hired out of the chair by my orthodontist, right, right, right. Uh, who offered me a job because we connected over like writing because we both loved writing and. Uh, and that was like a, an anti-sex job in a lot of ways. However, and I, I think he would hate for me to say this, and I haven't talked to him about any of this modern horror stuff, but um, part of my job description working for the orthodontist was that we would go for lunch every Wednesday mm-hmm. because I only worked Wednesdays and maybe another day in the week, but we'd always go for lunch when I was there. And he was going through a divorce and so basically the lunch was me listening to him and giving him advice. Wow, you were his therapist. I was an escort, not being paid to have sex. Right. I was learning the art of listening to men and counseling them on their problems. Oh, wow. He taught me more about escorting than all of my sexual experiences combined. Right. And he would hate to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure that would absolutely um, mortify him to think about, but I really do feel like what I learned from that dynamic was that I could be a young woman with fairly limited experiences listening to a man, uh, giving him that space to work out his problems Mm -hmm. and occasionally chime in with my own little ideas that made him feel better about his situation, that, that served to perhaps lead to solutions um and that i served a valuable function in his life besides being his receptionist and assistant so that was a thing that i did and then the 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 big game changer moment in my life was when i went to a strip club for the first time Um, how old were you then i was 20 20 years old and by then i'd already heard so much about strip clubs i was taking a class where like one of my fellow students was talking about having gone to zanzibar and how like depressed and dead-eyed the dancers were and how like disgusting an experience it was and i got this sense that it was there was probably more to it and that what she was revealing was her own prejudice against the women who were working there but i didn't know for sure because i'd never been to a strip club and then one night I, as I talk about in the book, I was hanging out with my friend Marcus. I don't name him in the book, but it was my friend Marcus. <laughs> Shout out to Marcus Tozer. Hi, Marcus. <laughs> Hi, Marcus. Uh, I miss you. Um, so we were hanging out at um, Riverdale Park, drinking, smoking weed, as as you do. 
As you do, yeah. (laughs) uh, He's telling me about uh, going to a strip club, and I'm like, I've never been to a strip club. He's like, really? Do you want to go? Jilly's is right down the street. Oh, my God, Jilly's. (laughs) R.I.P. Jilly's. Yes. Oh, my God, it's closed now. That place was the best dump ever. It was a beautiful dump. It was so good. And that was where I was initiated. That was my baptism. It's the only, like... A strip club that I remember that had a pool table. And like, Fillmore's has a pool table. Does it? Yes. Oh, no. Yeah, but yeah, that's true. Fillmore's does have a pool table. Okay, this before going to Fillmore's is the first strip club that I'd seen with a pool table, like in the middle of the place, like the ceiling was not done. Just, yeah, it seemed like a bar and there were just naked women around. I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah. That was Jilly's. With the hotel upstairs, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I know now it's a it's a hotel. Yeah. The Broadview Hotel. But yeah, so this place is at Broadview and Queen. Yeah. It's a famously uh, somewhat uh, lower scale uh, <laughs> establishment. Yeah. Um, it was a, a, a dive. It was a dive strip dive bar. Dive strip club, yeah. And we got there just in time for last call. So that, <laughs> just to give you an idea of like where we are in the night. And my, my immediate impression when I walked in was that it looked like a glow-in-the-dark bowling alley. The, oh like, the decor of the carpets. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I remember the stage being sort of inset in the wall. And there were two poles mm-hmm. in it. And we sat down. And I looked up at the stage. And this woman, yes, okay, she may have been missing some teeth. Um, <laughs> But she was very enthusiastic up oh, there. Oh, Scarlett. <laughs> you know, I didn't catch her name. But she was she was very impressive on the pool. And I thought, mm-hmm. you can't be this impressive on the pool and hate your life and want to die. Maybe you can. I. But at the time, right. that was my reasoning. Like, how can you exhibit such strength and grace and beauty and not in some part of you like what you're doing prefer what you're doing over other things you've chosen to be here granted there are all sorts of circumstances that lead people into the work right and they are nefarious influences everywhere that Mm -hmm. um push people into a job that is in a legal gray area um but for me i felt a very special transformation take place in my heart being there and felt an immediate and urgent desire to be closer to these women and at first i thought i was going to be a a strip club waitress mm-hmm. that was how i was going to get closer to the dancers right, just get your, get your toes wet yeah, yeah you know i i didn't necessarily identify with the people on stage but I, I was absolutely fascinated and I didn't see anything wrong with what they were doing. And I felt as if, and because I was stoned, I was like, I'm in just, I'm in a church dedicated to female sexuality. Nice. And the way that we perceive female sexuality is so dark and it has to be stigmatized and controlled and there's all these laws around it. And, and it's pleasure that people are criminalizing. Mm-hmm. And so that affects the way women treat their own sexuality and the way I saw my own. But I, because I, I almost have a latent, uh, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not naturally ashamed of myself. Shame does not come naturally to me. It's not something I was raised with. And so I am certainly aware of the stigma and I feel the stigma, but a lot of the shame that I'm, I'm supposed to have inherited, I don't have. And so I can see things in a different way. And I saw what was happening as like a very holy, beautiful thing that ought to be exalted. And um, I thought that these women should be praised and I wanted to be in this environment with them. Later, after I started developing an addiction to going to strip clubs and finding people to take me, you know, and also like, you know, paying my own way and getting dances and getting my friends excited about strip clubs, um, I realized that I didn't want to just be serving drinks at the strip club. I wanted to be on stage. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted nothing more than to dance to my favorite music, take my clothes off, and have people look at my pussy. You to participate in the Holy Sermon. Yeah, that I wanted to not... Priestess of sexuality. Exactly. I wanted to be the preacher at the pulpit. Yeah. Preaching the sermon of my flesh. 
and feeling like that was something that was worth sharing body of my body yeah exactly give people their communion Mm -hmm. oh it's amazing i wonder if you ever uh, have you ever been to um i don't know if you caught caesars on danforth or caddies in scarborough no (laughs) those were some real nice dives man i just wonderful i preferred the dives over the 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 classy establishments because classy it always felt synthetic yeah the women were a little too beautiful and a little too detached uh, and the security was a little too tight and the men were a little too many <laughs> and like rowdy and the price is too high but you go to a dive and you just see like the honest worker coming in there after work having a, a you know a Coors Light and these women with you know uh, experience from all over the world or or Diamonds in Mississauga they had an amateur night on Mondays and that was fantastic so my best experiences at strip clubs were not the the luxurious ones. It were it was the the dives, and then I find that place like Fillmore's is actually a great combination. Yeah. Because it's not it's not your like super fancy brass rail for your eyes only type, and it's not really uh, divey either. It's it's got a good balance, and I find that a lot of the the women at Fillmore's actually put on a fucking great stage show. Mm-hmm. So it like I've seen something that that bordered on burlesque uh one night being there. So it's a it's a fun spot. Yeah. For <laughs> sure. It is I I do I do enjoy working there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cut <laughs> to the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Cut, yeah. But you didn't start there. Did you start there? At, at Fillmore's? Uh for my stripping career? Yeah. Yeah, I've started there and I will finish there. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It's a good spot. I've never worked anywhere else. Well, that's that's where I ran into you. Yeah. Yeah. After so I saw uh, I saw you perform at uh, Oasis. You did a little bit from your book, and it was fantastic. The writing is is uh, is really exciting, and the stories are fucking amazing. So thank you. <laughs> that combined with your bubbly personality, that smile, and just like the way you uh, you you present is is absolutely phenomenal. So it caught my uh, my attention, and I was there with some some diehard fans of yours. And they're like, well, you got to come. You got to come to Oasis. You got to see Andrea. I'm like, all right, all right. What is this modern whore? Great. Okay. I go there and I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And then I, uh, one night I'm at Fillmore's with, with some friends. And who do I see there? But the <laughs> modern whore herself. And I'm like, okay, this, I ha- okay, now I have to say something. And I. So you got up on stage. I got up on stage with my, <laughs> with my fin. That's a fiver, by the way. I got up with, on the stage with my fin. But, so it's customary, it, and Filmers is the only place in Toronto that allows uh, customers to come up on stage. But what you're supposed to do is lie down immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I had my back turned, and then you sort of like came up to me and like tapped me on the shoulder, yeah. standing up. And you're like, who the fuck is this guy? I get, was like, get him off stage. <laughs> no, but it was more like, oh, hello, yes, hi. hi. Can you lay down, please? And you're like, you should be on my podcast. I'm like, great. Can you lay down, please? I did not ask you then. Stop. You you're making you me sound like an ass. No. no, I asked you afterwards. I asked you afterwards on on Instagram. The point of the story is I that it took hi, a lot though. for you to lie down on stage. Yeah, because I'm like, hey, I'm like, do you remember me? And you're like, oh, this person. I'm like, yeah, kind of that person. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, lie down. I'm like, yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was just very funny for me because. <laughs> the the image of like us just having a conversation standing there on stage was really funny. It was uh, good. Yeah, and then I I rode you. I rode you on the stage. That's that's the thing. So the guy that's comes the up, he lays down, and then the dancer dry humps the the living hell out of them. So and then sometimes picks up the five in creative ways. Yeah. <laughs> yes. After that is when I messaged you on Instagram. Okay, okay. And I said, well, it was an interesting encounter. Uh, We have friends in common. You know, you're you're good friends with Erin Pym, whose podcast I've been on, and uh, she's recently been on mine. So I'm like, well, shot in the dark. Do you want to be on another podcast? (laughs) And you're like, yeah. And then now here we are, several weeks later. So now, why don't we uh, get into your book? Sure. Because that's, that's the thing. That's the thing that brings all of this kind of together nicely. And isn't it weird for you as, okay, so as an author, is it weird for you that people come up to you and they kind of have a voyeuristic, intimate uh, look 
into your life and you might not know anything about these people and they're just they're excited and they feel like they know you and you don't know them so like that there's that weird dynamic no i don't i don't um i don't feel weird about it no no i don't it, it doesn't make me uncomfortable for people to know these things about me maybe not a sense of discomfort i'm, I'm just saying it, it's like one person has all this information and you have like almost none so the 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 approach is 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 different from both angles like i'm coming in with a lot of excitement i'm like oh my god this person i want to talk about all these things and you're like well i don't know much about you right yeah. so i don't know if that is that ever if you ever feel that or I, sense that i understand that but i i guess i try to constantly live in the present and accept people for who they are and whatever they choose to present to me mm -hmm. i try and respond to that like yeah sometimes you like you have all this knowledge and information and research you've done on a person and then you're seeing them for the first time in real life and it's so exciting but at the end of the day like you're both two humans that just need to interact with each other and uh sometimes on stage for five <laughs> yeah just saying <laughs> It's exactly. a legitimate approach. Maybe not for talking too much, apparently. <laughs> Get down! <laughs> Get down. Yeah. But yeah, it, um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't... It, I've it doesn't put my, phase you. It I've put myself you. in that position because yeah. I feel comfortable in that position. Well, I've had I've had people come up to me and they're talking to me about the podcast and they're excited about all these things and I get a little bit of that. I'm like, I don't know much about this person. So like my feedback is is always just this like, thank you so much, thank you for the support, but like I don't know what to say about them. Well, then you just ask, you know? Yeah, because so it's, it's weird. When somebody's complimenting you, you want to compliment them back, but you're like, I, other than like your appearance, I, I can't say much because I don't know you yet. Maybe I need to learn a page from your book. That's what I need to do. So I got to tell you, what did I want to show you here? So I took down some quotes from your book as I was reading it. Aww. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. A good friend of mine, Edith, who is a huge fan of yours, who's been on the show. Her episode is Greg and Edith. She was the one that brought me to your, to your uh, Oasis thing. And I asked her, I'm like, where do you get a copy of this book? She goes, it's like sold out everywhere. There might be a copy at this Queen Street uh, shop. Do you want me to check for you and pick one up for you if I'm around? Fuck yeah. She picks me up a copy, and this was uh, this was like I think in January, where uh, cuffing season, seasonal depression, and things were just like you know feeling shitty. So I used your book as self care. I took baths and I read through it, and it is it is definitely a book that's hard to put down. Uh, well, yeah, because the stories and I like I like the um, like brief kind of chapters and things where you can kind of have easy places to stop yes because that encourages me to read more actually yeah so if i read a book and it's like 500 pages and each chapter is like 30 40 pages i'm like fuck it feels like i have to there's like this completionist in me yeah right? but with these like short ones it's like oh here's a little dose okay now i can stop but wait oh what's the next story and then i kept going right so i i read it in like three baths <laughs> literally every time i read your book i was in the bath oh yeah so it's self-care and I took down some uh, these two quotes that you wrote in your book because it related to some of the stuff I'm working on on kind of like neoliberalism and existentialism. So I just want to share with you. Uh, this is my little fanboy stuff. <laughs> so here's what I wrote down. We're all hoes. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, We're all hoes. When you do something for money, when you'd rather be doing anything else, you're a hoe. Where, hun? Page 67. Modern whore. So I, that really resonated with me, and it's followed by, by another quote here, which I'll read after, but it tied into this whole like neoliberal thing that I've been on. I've been reading a lot of uh, and re researching a lot on neoliberalism, which is like this you know heavy form of privatization where the, the state and the government does not interfere, so it's supposed to be the highest form of freedom and individuality, but it places all the onus on you and the the forced responsibilization for your own uh, your own health success achievement everything just weighs you down so you kind of have to be this product that's marketable and you sell your skills and you sell your body and you sell yourself so essentially every person becomes a, a, a commodified product and this kind of touched into that so I wrote here my commentary to your quote from the introspections of an escort the neoliberal self is subjected to prostitution in a power relation to the state. Wow. Exchanging labor for money, 
and self-interest for self-sustenance. Hmm. Again, reflecting the inescapability of commodifying the self either willingly with agency or unwillingly without agency or perhaps even awareness. A catch-22, a forced choice, the nihilism of no alternative. Wow. Followed by your quote, we all got to make a living, right? Make a couple sacrifices, huh? We're all hoes. And you can either find a way to love the fucking or you can keep on hating that you're getting fucked. Also page 67. <laughs> so I think that what, what made me think there was, was this idea that it ties into the way that, at least in our society here, uh, sex workers aren't protected by the law. Right. And because they're not protected by the law, you know, yes, you do have to... to kind of obtain your own agency, sell yourself, uh, market yourself, and that part can be empowering, but it can also be frustrating and it can also be dangerous because the state refuses to implicate itself in your safety, right? Both sexual health, physical uh, health and safety, uh, they're not there for you. Right. So in one way, it is this kind of badass outlaw way to go and make a living and do something that's on the gray areas, right, as you were saying. But that's also because the, the state refuses to take responsibility for, for these sorts of things. So everything comes down to you. Right. Right. So that's, uh, that's it, it tied in nicely with this. I mean, the other comment here was about solidarity. So I, I wrote something like, an awareness of the circumstances with a forced choice left to the individual. Love it or hate it. It's up to you. Again, negating alternatives like solidarity is the neoliberal form of subjectivity at play. It's your job to find meaning internally by changing the way you handle the circumstances around you instead of trying to change them, a notion that's marketably hopeless. So in the sense, it's like the, the, the absence in policy and law to protect sex workers gives you this notion that there, it, it's not possible to change the circumstances. You're not going to be able to change all the laws. I mean, you can fight for it for a certain period of time, but it kind of denounces the possibility of solidarity, like getting together, starting a sex workers union, yeah. right? These sorts of things, because then that takes away time from your, your, from you in which you could be making money. Right. So it forces you to try to make changes in your, in the way you look at the world, in the way you perceive it, right? So it's like I gotta learn to love the fucking because I'm getting fucked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I, I I don't even know where to begin. Like there's there's a lot there. And that's where we cut off. For now. Next week, part 2 of this interview is going to be released where we continue talking about Andrea's book, her experiences escorting, and we talk about our favorite stories from the book, the reviews and more. So wait for it next week. It's coming. Don't worry. It'll be worth the wait. You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty and to stimulate your thinking. Okay, we can't do that. <laughs> that was good. I got too grody. You got too, uh, too excited. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>